0: Hello, Worcester and the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is about community development through the lens of Worcester, Massachusetts, and addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy. Follow us on Twitter at Public Hearing MA and join our conversations. What topics do you want to hear discussed more on the show themes, etc., tag us and let us know. I mentioned in our first episode of this series with Domenica Peron that I am not an expert as it relates to the intricacies related to housing and programs and initiatives that seek to address housing in equity-centered ways. So I have been on this learning journey with all of you, our listeners, as we've been talking about equitable solutions to housing. Uh, I also want to share that on public hearing, we do discuss uh, challenges related to harmful experiences and traumas, and today we will be discussing topics like domestic violence. If you are experiencing domestic violence and are looking for support, please call the YWCA of Central Mass hotline at 508-755-9030. This is the Public Hearing Podcast. Today we're continuing our series on housing with Amanda Mattingly from the YWCA, Amanda has been an advocate for survivors of domestic and sexual violence for over seven years and has served survivors in community-based and residential settings. She believes strongly in using a trauma-informed social justice lens, and she currently works at the YWCA of Central Massachusetts as an advocate and supervisor with a focus on housing. She administers the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, or ERAP, funds to DV survivors in the Central Mass region. For the past three years, she led a pilot project called ICAP, serving survivors experiencing housing instability until its conclusion in June. In addition, Amanda has trained advocates and community members on domestic violence, advocacy, and vicarious trauma. She participates in the Worcester County Domestic Violence High-Risk Team, the Housing Stability Subcommittee of the Massachusetts Governor's Council to Address Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence, the Worcester Coordinated Community Up Response Network, CCRN, the Worcester Hub, a City of Worcester initiative that combines the efforts of more than 30 local and state organizations to address acute risk behaviors and cases including drug and opioid abuse, chronic homelessness, mental health issues, poverty, and crime and the Worcester County Continuum of Care. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Impressive and long resume of things that you are involved in. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners to get them a little bit more connected and familiar with you?
1: Sure, so um, I am also a proud step parent and wife of an amazing person. Um, I am a survivor of violence, that's why I got into this work. I identify as a queer woman. Um, I am a white middle class, working class person, and I feel really strongly about um, economic, housing, and survivor justice, racial justice gender and sexuality justice. Um, And I'm really happy that you invited me here to your show today.
0: (laughs) I am so excited that you are here and thank you for sharing more about you and kind of what fuels and motivates you in this work. And I think it's, it's so important for folks to be hearing and understanding the like motivations that bring people into into doing what is very difficult work. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, in your bio you mention like a trauma informed lens and approach to this work. And I've, you know, been very clear with our listeners <laughs> through this housing process or this housing series that this is an area that I am like, yes, I'm here to advocate and here to support, but I have people in my network that I look to to ask questions like related to like, what should we be doing in the relationship Related to housing because this is not my kind of specialty area and we've had a lot of guests on the show who all of whom I think, you know, would identify as like trauma-informed pra- practitioners or healing-centered practitioners and how that influences how they think about approaching housing and, and some of the needs of of people facing uh, chronic homelessness or are fleeing abuse in their their current living situation. So could you give us maybe from the work that you do with the YW a little bit of a, a frame on um, some of the day-to-day of how you support survival Survivors as it relates to housing
1: insecurity? Sure. So um, one thing about serving survivors, um, especially now in this current housing climate, is that housing instability is extremely common and it's something that most of the people that we work with are dealing with. It's not that we have kind of a population of regular survivors and then this population that's also dealing with homelessness or housing insecurity. It's that that's a threat to pretty much anyone that we serve, especially because folks are often really dependent on their partners who might be abusive for their housing, not only for the place um, that they live, but because they are combining incomes to share the house um, and they're emotionally and financially um, and, you know, in many other ways, kind of intertwined. So this is something that is definitely connected to all of our services at the YW, um, in our community-based services, in our residential services, in the courts, and um, kind of all aspects. And then um, we also have recently kind of created this housing and shelter department um, that is very much still in the domestic violence services department area, um, but they're kind of these two um, kind of (laughs) Mm. co-departments. And we did that because it's really important, I think, now to um, focus specifically on housing, uh, not have it as sort of an afterthought um, or just part of the regular work that we do, um, because, you know, the rental market has been really, um, really tough for people especially in Worcester, especially Massachusetts, um, our rents are skyrocketing. And um, we're seeing really, really high rates of homelessness. We're like number six in the country, Massachusetts, for how many people who are homeless that we have in our population, um, which is wild.
0: Yeah, and, and from conversations that we've had through this housing series, it seems that the projections of homelessness are going to be significantly increasing in the winter, which usually is something that we see um, increased numbers of homelessness in the winter, um, but higher than historically um, here in, in Worcester. And there's so many kind of varying factors that contribute to that, um, whether it's job access, whether it's um, you know some of the things that we're talking about here. And an equi- equitable approaches to housing is really what has motivated us to kind of come into um, doing a spotlight on this topic for this series on public hearing. And as with any equity centered process, it really looks at like what are the unique needs of individuals and groups, and um, how can we build solutions that are recognizing that one-size-fits-all is not something that actually works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the unique components of your work connected to housing, specifically for um, DV survivors?
1: So, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think as a, as a movement, we're a little bit new to the housing world. Um, we're catching up quickly. And um, it's important for us to kind of have our own housing lens and resources because a lot of housing resources are not really truly accessible for survivors. And what we can bring to our work is not just the housing support, like a typical housing search case management, rental assistance funds, et cetera, but also that lens, that trauma-informed lens, um, where we're taking into account all the different needs that survivors have specifically um, and really tailoring that um and individualizing our work with each individual person. Um, And so a lot of the things that we look at um, with housing are not only the housing search, where are you going to live, what can you afford, but also what's safe for you, what geographical areas are um, in a, a zone where you feel safe, but also in a way that you can still be connected to your community. Um, and still, you know, access your job and whatever networks that you have. Um, And then we also, at least with our kind of components at the YW, um, have been working in a way where we're not requiring, like, proof and documentation that people really are survivors, that they really have a financial need. Because most programs out there, um, they make you wait (laughs) A long time to get any services, you have to submit all this documentation proving that you're basically worthy enough of help because you have a small enough amount of money or low enough income or you've been homeless for long enough or you've been homeless enough for long enough, mm. um, meaning like you've actually been sleeping in your car or on the street, Um Whereas a lot of the folks that we work with who are housing unstable stable are what they call doubled up, meaning like you're sleeping on someone's couch um, or you're staying in their spare bedroom maybe, but you don't have your own home. And those people are often not counted in kind of like national statistics mm. about people who are homeless because they're looking at this very strict um, population that they define as chronically homeless. Um, whereas a lot of the people that we work with um, may not fit that population But they're still without a home. They still need support. And so we say you don't have to prove that you've survived domestic violence. We don't need a copy of your restraining order. We don't need um, a police report because Mm -hmm. not every survivor has those things. Mm -hmm. That's not a safe option for every survivor or accessible option. Um, And if you say that you need help, we believe you. Uh, We start by believing.
0: And that is amazing and sadly not the approach that a lot of programs take right and um, we spoke with Nikki Bell and Desiree Demos from from Lyft around kind of their perspectives at Lyft around like housing first solutions like how do we connect people immediately or as immediately as possible to resources that enable them to get into safe space and not just safe space dignified space dignified Mm -hmm. housing that enables them to have privacy while also enables them to have that um that safe space to think about what, um, is next, what, what next steps might be most beneficial for, for them based on where they're at. Um, the, you also mentioned kind of the, we talked briefly about kind of the, a trauma informed approach to this work. Um, and it's, you know, you mentioned some of the other, like more, uh, like, publicly accessible or available, like housing assistance programs, things like that. And, you know, in, in DV situations, and I'm approaching this from some of my work supporting Lyft as well, is, you know, you go into some of these places or try and access some of these programs, and the people on the other side of the table might not be trauma-informed and might Mm -hmm. be asking questions that are traumatizing or re-triggering or might be people that you've had harmful experiences with. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how we might make, for people who are listening who are outside of this but might be in housing assistance or might be um, working on providing benefits or state state assisted support to to folks who are thinking about how can I change my daily practice to be more trauma informed and more like care centered? Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you would recommend that people do to um, kind of either find those resources or shift some of their behaviors?
1: That is an excellent question um, because I think we need to assume that anyone that we're serving in this kind of work is traumatized and has experienced trauma. Um, It's not just that we at the YW are the only ones who serve this special population of survivors. Um, Survivors are everywhere. Um, You definitely know survivors. You're definitely serving survivors. Um, And the fact is that they estimate that 80% of women and children who are in shelter or who have experienced homelessness are survivors. So we're not in these kind of separate little worlds. We're serving the same population. Mm. Um, And when someone comes to you for help, you can just assume they have been through some pretty rough stuff and that has impacted them. Um, And a lot of the ways that trauma impacts us Um, make it really hard for us to kind of be fully functional people in the world, unfortunately. Um, And there's not only the, you know, kind of emotional, psychological trauma, but we have a huge population of people with traumatic brain injuries. And a lot of the symptoms of PTSD and traumatic brain injuries really overlap. And that can look like people who have poor concentration, who have a really hard time planning ahead, um, who miss appointments who might miss phone calls, who forget stuff, who lose things. Um, and it's not because they just are bad at life. Mm. Um, they've experienced some really extreme psychological trauma, a lot of times traumatic brain injuries from either um, physical assault or strangulation. And um, instead of kind of being annoyed and frustrated that people are missing appointments or having a hard time concentrating what you're doing, collecting all the many documents that you're requiring them to submit. Um, I think I would encourage people to have patience and recognize that they're not just trying to make your life hard for you. Um, They, and they're not quote unquote help resistant. Um, They're trying their best. Everybody's Mm -hmm. trying their best. And um, it's really difficult to kind of meet all these demands, especially when you're, Um, working a full-time job, and you're parenting, and you're just trying to recover from trauma.
0: And I think that piece is so critical is what our systems expect of people who are facing recovery from trauma. And often it's like this marathon to get folks into places where they feel they're able to start processing that. But we set up all these barriers beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why when we've – and something that has been really, um, I think, enlightening for me in these conversations is, like, this housing-first approach Mm -hmm. to addressing everything from, you know, housing insecurity, most obviously, but um, substance use disorder, mental health disorders, um, other kind of co-occurring challenges that people are facing in their lives to be able to say, like, at the bare minimum, what we need to provide people is safe and secure and dignified personal space to be able to start processing and, and healing and recovering. And I don't think we – and maybe you have thoughts on this. I don't think our systems and our society does a good job at allowing for time to heal. Right. Right? And, like, what what is the – and that – is individual for everybody, right? The mm-hmm. amount of time it takes to process and heal and um, face some of these traumas and these these negative experiences. And we often are like, well, in order to have housing, you need to have a job first and prove employment so that we know that you can you know, pay some type of rent. And if you're not showing up to this program or you're not showing up to work, then we can't help you. And now you're back out on the street again. Um, right. So I'm interested in kind of maybe... Maybe this is more of a philosophical or like, what do we do question, but Mm -hmm. your thoughts on on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have many thoughts on that. Um, I think that housing first is definitely the way to go. Um, There's really no reason not to, considering that we have 16 million vacant homes in this country and only half a million homeless people. Um, So we have plenty of housing to go around. And I think that we would do a real disservice to people when we... Um, first of all, are measuring their neediness and their worthiness and making themselves prove that they're quote-unquote ready for housing without really giving them any support to do that. Um, And like study after study on Housing First shows that it's extremely effective because it's so much easier to kind of heal and get help and get yourself situated when you have somewhere to sleep at night And of course, when you don't have somewhere to sleep at night, those things are impossible or really difficult. Um, So I I really appreciate the housing first model. Um, And I think that we try really hard in the kind of homelessness and housing field um, to kind of create lots of little programs to do that. Um, and they're really specific. There's programs for survivors, there's programs for veterans, um, there's programs for like lots of different populations for only the really specifically chronically homeless. Um, But we really need a bigger picture approach nationally um, when we have such a huge need and we have plenty of money and we have plenty of housing. um, It really seems like it's a choice that we're making as a country to keep people homeless. Um, and this is a recent problem for our country this is this is um, really increased in um, numbers just in the last few decades um, in the last century. So we've made choices in the country that have put us in this situation, and we continue to just spend money on lots of other different things besides helping people so We are going to do what we do now in the moment because that's all we can do. We're going to help as many people as possible, um, but we really do need kind of a bigger infrastructure for helping people.
0: Are there barriers that you and like the YW face on building programs that really enable those housing first, like here, we're going to connect you. We'll get this stuff figured out later that prevent even Organizations who want to provide services like this um, to people, you know, I know that there are a lot of like state and federal dollars that have strict guidelines of like who's eligible for use and that even our local organizations sometimes are strapped for how they're able to administer those resources. Mm -hmm. So is that a barrier? Like, are you facing challenges connected to larger, you know, funding streams or state or federal regulations that prevent from some of those like, yes, you are asking for support, we're giving you support?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I think money is always the barrier. Finding the perfect grant and finding the resources, finding the staff to do it um, are definitely barriers. Um, I definitely want to shout out our grants writer um, for finding us really awesome grants to do um, and, you know, our kind of senior leadership in general for making that possible. Um, and we have, you know, we had the ICAP pilot, um, which unfortunately ended where we were serving survivors of, um, experiencing housing instability. And um, now we're we're starting up a grant um, that we got from HUD, um, which will be some... some sort of supportive transitional housing for survivors. Um, and those programs will be extremely meaningful for the folks that we can serve, but we're not going to be able to touch, you know, everybody who is experiencing those issues. So we're kind of at a place at the YW of capacity building. Um, definitely shout out to our housing director, Evelyn. Um, she is kind of heading the charge um, of kind of building capacity in the residential and housing world. Um, but we do have a lot of barriers, just kind of locating those monies and putting them into place and kind of hiring enough people to put it together, but we're working on it.
0: (laughs) How would you instruct folks interested in participating in advocacy and support for, housing for, housing for survivors of domestic violence. Um, What, what do you think people need to know and what should they be telling their their elected officials, what should they be talking about around the dinner table to make people more aware of the realities of these situations and encourage people to really think about things like you're mentioning, like spending and budget allocations, like the the realities of uh, home vacancies and the realities of the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Uh, what are some of the things that you would say, like this is your dinner table talking point, this is your um, adv- advocacy points, like if you run into your state senator or uh, your city councilor, like here's what we would recommend you start thinking about and advocating for.
1: So, um, I mean, money is definitely the name of the game. Um, we always need more funding in um, domestic and sexual violence services. Um, and I definitely would want to underscore that this can be you. This can happen to anyone. Um, most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and, um, Anyone can be can be victimized. I hate to say it like that, but um, you know survivors, you there's a huge number of population of survivors. and um, when we're looking at our community and thinking about you know how to help them, um, I think we need to listen to the people that are impacted um, and really get that input on what they want. And I would also point to the Jane Doe. Inc. Coalition, that's our Massachusetts Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. Um, they have legislative priorities that I really appreciate. Um, so definitely point people that way as well.
0: Yeah. Jane Doe Inc. I attended their um, <clears throat> recent, a uh, few months back, they had a summit on uh, the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm and really like the cradle to prison pipeline and what's, and that's an area of work that myself and action by designers really involved with here in, in the state of Massachusetts. And it was like such a powerful and potent, not only like here are like actionable things that we can do to like, dismantle disrupt and eliminate this pipeline in our communities but also like here's the legacy and the history of like why we're here um and uh one of the speakers richie Reseda was mm-hmm. uh absolutely i was like i like have he's watched amazing. his talk at that conference like multiple times because i learned something new every single time and he's like a hardcore abolitionist who's really looking at like here is the legacy and the history of why we are here. And it's Mm -hmm. connected to the patriarchy. It's connected to white supremacy. It's connected to racism. It's connected to all of these things that people still have a really difficult time being able to say, yes, we can name this at a table and Mm -hmm. collectively agree that we need to dismantle and disrupt these harmful systems. Um, and, And this is why like, we're talking about housing, but especially at the intersection of housing and domestic violence, like this is an issue that requires us to be talking about the reeducation of men and boys. This is like really requiring us to look at, um, historical housing policies that have separated, uh, black and Brown people from accessing, uh, accessing resources through redlining, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, those are really important things to, to name and like, uh, encourage people again at those dinner conversations, lean into making people uncomfortable and, you know, lean into yourself being uncomfortable for listeners. That's one of the things that I think is often the hardest hurdle is like, these conversations can make me feel really like icky and bad. Um, Right. But like really being able to hold up a mirror to ourselves and say like, how am I participating in these structures when I'm not aware about the mechanics of how they work?
1: Right. Absolutely. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I just want to say that our, our prisons in this country are full of survivors and they really do not serve them or our community as well.
0: Absolutely. No. Absolutely. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. Um, Listeners, we've been talking with Amanda Mattingly from the YWCA. Um, Thank you for listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is our show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for every person in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Joshua Croke, Founder of Action by Design, where we help organizations, coalitions, and cities imagine and materialize equitable, just, and joyful communities through art and design. Get even more connected to the show at publichearing.co or follow us on Twitter, I'll say and follow us on Twitter at Public Hearing MA. Our audio producer is Juliana Durazio, who also made our show music. Thanks to Kelly Kajurik and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of this show. The work continues, Worcester. Thanks for listening.